so, uh, you know, we are kind of folding together the fourth week in Advent and Christmas Eve, since uh, that's the way the calendar worked this year. So I'm going to continue the uh, series, Advent series on songs, and uh, it requires a little bit of skipping. So the text for today is Luke 1, 67 through 75, wait for it, 79, and then Luke 2, 8 through 14. All right, Uh, Luke 1, starting at 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he has said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors. To remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the land of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. Skip to 79. To shine on those living in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet on the path to peace. And Luke 2, skip to verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So uh, this is essentially the last big day in Advent, and to prepare ourselves for the big event, I figured we'd look at these two songs that are kind of on either side of the birth story. So, uh, uh, Zachariah's song, which, you know, is in part about John, and we talked about uh, him and being struck dumb and all that stuff uh, uh, a little while back, uh, but is mostly about Jesus, and then the angel's song to the shepherds announcing Jesus' birth. So those are the kind of two songs that are like the bookends or brackets or it's the frame for, I don't know, however you want to say it, the story of Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Luke which we'll, you know, do on Christmas Eve. But I thought it'd be important to do these two because, you know, not only does it give us the kind of complete set of the songs for Advent, but more importantly because they give us a sense of the kind of why of Jesus' birth for Luke. And they give us a sense of exactly what it is that the Gospel of Luke wants to tell us that the birth of Jesus is accomplishing. It's the beautiful frame around the uh, the, the, the picture that is uh, Jesus in the manger. And when you look at these two together, to me there are some themes that like, you know, nerdy, uh, some really interesting theological themes pop, but more importantly, uh, to me, it is uh, one of the most beautiful framings of the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his coming and his incarnation and birth at Christmas. So first we're going to start with Zach. Okay, so part one, 
Zachariah's song and God's glory. So last time we talked about Zechariah, I made this point, and the point was basically like he serves as a representation of Israel. You know, he's uh, uh, been faithful for a long, long time. Um, he's a guy that, you know, as we talked about, was in kind of a rough situation because Herod had come in, he was uh, installed by Caesar, and Herod had basically like kicked most of the folks out of the uh, temple that were there because of their lineage or there because uh, they of their priestly expertise, and he kind of packed the temple full of people who, uh, you know, were basically doing the work of Rome. And Zechariah, he'd been, we know he'd been faithful because he's been old, and it, uh, the scripture says uh, that he was. And, you know, he kind of had a comparatively lowly estate. He was a rural priest, most likely. Uh, you know, he kind of got into the Holy of Holies by winning the lottery, essentially. So here's this guy that you know, is uh, obviously someone who's celebrated in Scripture, but that there's lots of markings of a guy being kind of, I don't know, low status relative to the folks around him. And there he is sitting in the, uh, by the altar in the Holy of Holies, and Gabriel appears to him. You know, first kind of, at least as we read in Scripture, first kind of real appearance of the tangible presence of God in the temple in hundreds of, of years, and as you recall, Gabriel tells him what's going to happen. You're going to have a son. You're going to be John, and then Gabriel kind of, or, or then uh, Zechariah kind of hesitates, and as a result, he's struck speechless. You know, but like Israel, story of Israel through the kind of whole of salvation history, he eventually comes around, and we saw uh, last week, he, uh, you know, or like two weeks ago, scribbling the name John on papyrus or paper or whatever he had there, and then his mouth opens and he begins praising the Lord. So I want to kind of drill in on the things that kind of spill out of his mouth, Zechariah's song. He's, uh, so let's look at 67, 73 again. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets, salvation from our enemies from the hands of those who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant that he swore to our father Abraham. Now, I, I suppose it's not a surprise that Zechariah, who's a guy who you know, is a, a kind of faithful follower of the traditions of Israel, uh, makes the point explicitly that what happens with Jesus is a fulfillment of the prophecies of the prophets of old. And you know, I don't want to minimize that. Of course, that's a big deal. And, and of course, it's a big deal that uh, it is a fulfillment of the oath that God swears to Abraham. But that, that's kind of old hat for us in thinking about Christmas and thinking about Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy, etc. And it sort of would have been old hat for the people who were listening to him because, uh, you know, many of them had this kind of messianic vision of uh, the house of David being restored. Uh, and, you know, it might have shocked them to think that he was talking about a baby who's born in, not quite in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem, and not apparently of royal lineage, uh, and not really remarkable in any other way except for the humble circumstances of his birth. But, you know, the thing I want to focus in on is that whole horn of salvation thing, because it, it really gets me. It really gets me. Everyone in the audience would have gotten the idea because it was just important in the kind of lore of Israel that the horn was a symbol of strength. And the horn was, you know, a tangible manifestation of the glory of God. So, uh, you know, uh, 
it would would have been the kind of tangible, uh, actually literally hearable uh, symbol of the presence of Israel's creator and protector. And one of the things is, it, you know, when you figure out, understand what the horn means, I think is the key. What does the horn mean here? We know that the horn is likely a reference to Psalm 18. And Psalm 18, anybody, Trey, you know off, anybody know offhand? Yeah, it's a, it's a deep cut, as they say. So uh, Psalm 18 is written by David, and tradition holds that David spontaneously wrote the psalm when the Lord delivered him from the hands of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So it begins, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. And it concludes in verse 50 by saying, The Lord gives his king great victories and shows unfailing love to his anointed, to David, to his descendants forever. So, you know, the horn of salvation is connected with strength. It's, you know, you can think of lots of instances in the Bible where the horn played a pretty significant role, whether it be people, you know, marching around Jericho, yada, yada, yada. So it would have been for that audience a significant symbol of strength for Zechariah to prophesy here about the coming of Jesus as being connected with the, the power of Israel. In fact, the horn was also significant for kind of liturgical and ritual reasons. So it also invokes the idea of the ram's horn that was blown every year at the end of Yom Kippur. So, you know, Jewish New Year, 10 days of celebration, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And when everybody finished up and the proper sacrifices had been made and Israel was made right with the world, they'd blow that horn. And so the horn of salvation has that kind of you know, dual meaning of both strength and of atonement. But there's a third meaning there that just, uh, I didn't know this until this year and really uh, gets me. So the blowing of the ram's horn, the other thing that people would have associated with it was that every seventh Sabbath year, so the Jubilee, they would, would, would blow the ram's horn. In fact, Jubilee literally means the year of the ram's horn. And, you know, you all know about Jubilee. We've talked about it some, but in the year of Jubilee, uh, debts would be forgiven, slaves would be released. Basically, everything in the social order was reset and everything was made, uh, you know, kind of all kind of transgressions held against other people, forgiven, etc., etc. So think about that. This is not only the horn of David is strength. This is not only the horn as the possibility for atonement, but I think this is also the horn as jubilee, the horn of salvation that makes possible the making right of the world. And as Zechariah says in Luke 174 about rescuing God's people from the hand of our enemies, but it is also about freeing the poor and the oppressed and the outcast and the downtrodden and the afraid and everyone who lives in the shadow of death, like Zechariah says, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the path of peace. And as you all recall, the Greek irene for peace is a translation of shalom, and shalom is more than just the absence of conflict. Shalom is a description of the world where things are made right again, where people are freed from debts, where people are freed from slavery, and where everyone and all of God's people are able to flourish. So here's the thing. You know, more than Israel or even the promise to Abraham is at stake here. 
more than even just a vision of the horn of salvation as strength or, or, or glory is at, 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 at stake here. And in fact, in a weird way, thinking about what the horn of salvation is is a great way of thinking about exactly what God's glory means. Right? It was a symbol of God's glory as a way of saying that the nation of Israel would be made right again. It was a symbol of God's glory as a way of saying at the Day of Atonement that people could be freed from their transgressions. It was also a symbol of glory, a symbol of jubilee, a symbol of a, of a, of a full and new and kind of cosmic Sabbath that made the whole world right again. So what exactly does that horn mean? How exactly does it represent God's glory? Many might have heard Zachariah's song and thought, well, here comes the restoration of the glory of, house of, the, of the house of David. That's what he means when he says that they'll raise a, a horn of salvation. But the scope of that claim in Zechariah's prophecy is so much bigger if you see the Jubilee connection. It's an existential moment. It's a horn that declares Jubilee for the entirety of the cosmos. It's a horn that declares that God's glory is not only revealed in God's strength, or in the reestablishment of Israel, but God's glory is revealed in shining on all those who live in the darkness, on all of us who live in the shadow of death, and on all of us who desire the path to true and full peace. I don't have to remind you that vision of shalom is also a vision of the kingdom, where things are made right, where the world is made new, where God's glory is manifest not only in heaven, but in the warp and woof of the relationships that we have on earth. That the two are brought together and that Jubilee is not simply something that is declared as a, as a promise or intention or even simply the state of heaven where all debts are released and no one is oppressed, but that that is made to be right with the earth, that the horn of salvation that Zechariah is declaring is a manifestation of God's glory as a new age of peace and of Jubilee for the world. Part two. Angels, shepherds, and glory. So I know that I talk about shepherds all the time, and I hope you don't get too tired of it, but it is like one of my favorite parts of the gospel. Because to me, it really gets at the question of how we should understand God's glory. So uh, verse 8 of uh, Luke 2, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. So you all have heard me do this shtick before. You may, have, I think Trey may have done it sometimes. Some, you know, maybe it's predictable for some of you, but there was this regulation about the sheep that were raised in the areas surrounding Jerusalem. And that regulation said that if you were going to grow sheep in the outlying areas of Jerusalem, that those sheep could not be sold for food or other forms of consumption. Those sheep kind of had to go to the temple in one way or another. So in those areas around Jerusalem where the sheep would have grazed, where these shepherds likely would have been, the main role for the sheep that were raised there was likely to be fodder for the temple's sacrificial economy. So, you know, sometimes the sheep would be a little bit subpar. You'd use it for more humble sacrifices. But every once in a while, shepherds would raise a sheep that was good enough, that was perfect enough to be sacrificed at one of the high holidays, to be sacrificed, for example, at, uh, at Yom Kippur. And those sheep, in other words, if you think about what Yom Kippur meant for the people of Israel, were the most basic material condition for the function of the temple and the rituals that happened in it that made Israel right with God. 
So those sheep were pretty, pretty darn important. It's hard to overestimate the importance of the sheep that those shepherds were raising. Now, as we talked about with Zechariah, Rome had basically appointed Herod, and Herod had basically cleaned out the old vision of the priesthood based on lineage and based on piety, and instead he put in a bunch of guys who were kind of doing the political bidding of Rome. And so the temple was primarily a place now where the rich and the powerful were able to exercise these rituals that I imagine had to have become somewhat hollow. After all, like I said, presence of God hadn't been in there since, I don't know, Zechariah saw Gabriel. There wasn't any real tangible mark of God's relationship to the temple. And, you know, they, I imagine folks were largely going through the motions to legitimate the larger structure of Roman colonial rule. The Romans would say, hey, just, you know, be good. We'll let you have your ceremonies. You can sacrifice your sheep. But in the end, what was likely the case in the temple right then was that there were bad men who were pursuing a false glory, who were running the show in the place that was supposed to be the seat of holiness. And their she- these shepherds, their job basically was to provide the raw material that made that whole thing happen. Now, I know you will also recall that being a shepherd was just above the, being, the social status of being a thief or a tax collector or a criminal. In fact, one of the things that really got my goat this year in doing more research for this is there's some of them are more kind of fundamentalist friends out there lately have been on this trip of uh, busting Christmas myths. So I read all these articles that were busting the Christmas myth that shepherds were outcasts. He said, you know, I mean, look, all the things that say that shepherds were outcasts were basically extra biblical. And so the Bible has a high opinion of shepherds. And so, man, you know, uh, shepherds probably couldn't have been social outcasts. And I'm not even going to take the time to unpack what that would mean for the theology of this announcement. But when we get to the end, it's, it's not hard to see. Shepherds were outcasts, you know, and history matters. There's actual evidence about this. For example, a shepherd's testimony at the time would not count in court by law. So if a shepherd witnessed a crime, can't uh, let them testify their word was a priori taken to be, uh, you know, not credible. My boy Aristotle, who folks would rely on at the time to understand a lot of things, said that shepherds were... Uh, lazy, idle, unliked dullards who were getting their subsistence from chasing around tame animals. There was a time when it used to be that there was some honor in being a shepherd, but to really geek out on the history here, once Israel had settled back in Palestine and created larger agricultural concerns, they could farm and stuff, shepherding became the occupation for people who just like couldn't cut it on the farm. And so Mishnahs at the time, the kind of Jewish law at the time, describe shepherds as incompetent. And they say that, for example, this is my favorite example, there's an actual Mishnah that says that if you are walking uh, you know, out in the fields and you see a shepherd fall into a pit, shepherds are so morally depraved that you have no obligation to save them. Just let them sit in the pit. They're excluded from any meaningful civic or public or other office. They were labeled unclean in rabbinic law by virtue of the job that they did. That, you know, that kind of made them a class of people who didn't really count. Uh, this, new, uh, this historian, Jeremiah, who is also you know, uh, one of the folks who wrote about kind of Jewish uh, history at the time in Jerusalem, said, and I didn't know this one either, there was a law against buying wool or milk or even a, a kid from a shepherd directly uh, on the assumption that if the shepherd had any of that stuff, it was stolen property. 
This is a person who owns sheep. I mean, it's pretty bad. The, it, the other thing that he points out that's mind-boggling is that it was a hot topic among rabbis at the time of Jesus to uh, debate about whether or not Psalm 23 actually belonged in the Psalms because it declared God to be a shepherd. And of course, declaring God to be a shepherd was a pretty nasty insult to God. So, shepherds were in rough shape. The shade that was thrown on shepherds was not only cruel, it was wrong. Shepherding was actually very tough work. You lived in the fields, you were dirty all the time, you didn't get to sleep that much because you had to stay up to make sure that you could protect your flock from predators. You were poor, so you didn't have a ton to eat all the time. Maybe you didn't even have a place to live. You were like living in the most marginal of circumstances. And if you combine all that stuff together, there is, to me, this, I don't know, incomprehensibly <laughs> cruel irony. And it was that by legal, for legal reasons and just for practical reasons, if you were a shepherd, you were ritually unclean permanently. Which means what? You couldn't go into the temple. Couldn't get in there. They could not go into the temple. They would have had to go to the kind of edges of the temple gate. They would have delivered their sheep to a merchant who would then transmit the sheep to the temple. Imagine it. Imagine a shepherd father with a shepherd son sitting on a hillside late at night and maybe, you know, they get to talking and they start to talk about the idea that though they really didn't get to the city very much and they may not even be let in, they certainly couldn't darken the doors of the temple. But you know what, son, there's dignity in that work because maybe one day, if we are lucky, one of our sheep could be used for the sacrifice that would make things right between God and Israel. And imagine that that was a source of pride that kept them going during some frigid and some lonely nights. That is why the song that the angels sing matters. Because of all the places that the birth of Jesus could have been announced by the heavenly herald, it was not in Herod's court, it was not to the temple elite, but it was to those dirty, poor, ritually unclean shepherds on that hill who sat on that night to protect their sheep. That is glory. That is the substance of God's glory. That is God revealed is that God's glory is revealed in the verse of, in the birth of Jesus. Verse nine, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people today in the town of David. A savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah and the Lord, and this will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That is glory. The Greek word for glory, doxa, is weird. Sometimes it means opinion or social estimation. Think like pre-modern Facebook. Other times it means shininess, like when the glory of God appears in the temple. But, you know, likes and light aside, the most basic meaning of glory as doxa is it is the manifestation and of the essence and the substance of a thing. Doxa, glory, is the essence of a thing as it shows itself. Glory is then not only God's strength, 
not only God's provision, not only God's forgiveness, but God's glory is shown and manifest and performed here in that announcement to those shepherds. I always imagine the heavenly hosts also having horns. And after all the horns in the Jewish tradition are all one of the kind of primary markers of God's glory. And that horn would have typically belonged in the temple by rights of culture and tradition. And the announcement of the angels and the blowing of those horns should have been heard by Herod and Herod's collaborators. And of course, for them, it would have meant the victory of their political project, the summation of their own ambitions. But God's glory does not appear there. That is the substance of, that is the essence of, that is the glory of our God, that when God's glory first appears again in Jerusalem, it appears on a hill to dispossessed, ritually unclean outcasts. And then it appears in a manger. Now ask yourself, is glory about strength? It is, but his glory is about something else. It's about a universal and cosmic jubilee in which every person is set free from despair and from darkness and from sin and from death because Jesus has come to us. And the narrative in Luke puts a decided emphasis on the underappreciated side of that old glory continuum. Of course, it talks about the strength and the fulfillment and the rebuilding of Israel, but more than that, it talks about a God who has a heart for those who are outcast, who are downtrodden, and who are locked out. And not to put too fine a point on it, but Handel's Messiah has got it wrong. The text in Luke does not say, for unto us a child has been born. It says, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to them. To you, it has been born to the shepherds, the Greek grammar implies, specifically. The Messiah that has come, has come for them. The word in 12 for sign is semion. It's a word we've talked about before. It's not like the word for an indicator or a flag or something like a stop sign, but it's like the authenticating miracle or proof of the reality of the thing. How beautiful is it that the thing that is the cause of God's glory, the demonstration of it, the proof of it, the authenticating miracle is announced to those shepherds and declared to be for them specifically, for those who were locked out, for those who were outcast, for those who are subject to death and despair and destruction and dismay and all the ways that all of us are, but in a particularly tangible way. God's glory has appeared to those who have been locked out and oppressed by a political order, dressed up as a religious tradition, who had been so utterly socially excluded that they were treated as subhuman by the people around them, and yet who made the idea of sacrifice to make Israel right with God possible. God's birth is announced to them specifically. The Messiah has been born according to the word of heaven. Now look, Handel doesn't have it fully wrong. Those shepherds represent every person, as Zachariah's reflection on the horn point out, every person who lives in fear, who desires a world that is made right, who lives in the shadow of death, 
But here God's glory is not initially on the side of the powerful or the apparently righteous or the people who have strength and status. Here God's glory is on the side, just like when the curtain is torn and the death of Jesus on the cross, just like when the Holy of Holies is made apparent to the world, and just like as in the resurrection, everyone is invited into a new and complete Israel in which every person's count counts God's announcement to those shepherds is the beginning of a redefinition of God's glory in a way that celebrates the status of God's glory, not only as strength, but as grace, as love, as justice, and as a cosmic jubilee in which all of us are set free from the debts of death and sin and destruction. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, as if to put an exclamation point on it, Verse 14, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. That's it. The glory of God is manifest in that announcement. The glory of God is manifest in the incarnation. The glory of God is manifest in Jesus' birth in the humblest of circumstances. The glory of God is manifest in all those things is seeing the dignity of each person and understanding that each person is made in the image of God and in cultivating a heart for the outcast, the downtrodden, the dispossessed, and in seeing our solidarity with them because we too are subject to our own debt of death, our own debt of sin, our own debts of suffering. And the glory of the Lord is that it does not respect status or hierarchy as the gospel puts it does not god is no respecter of persons in the abstract sense nor the means by which we divide and distinguish between ourselves and others instead in jesus christ god's glory is manifest in shalom on earth that mirrors the glory of god in heaven and rests on all of those who have been chosen to have his favor and if god can favor a shepherd or an unwed mother, or a rural childless priest, or a woman at a well, or one accused of adultery, or a disciple who betrays and denies him, or every other person who has fallen short of God's glory, and every one of us, therefore, who is not righteous, then God has chosen and favors us all. If God, who loves us while we will still yet sinners, has shown favor to them, to the shepherds, to that whole list of people that I've just said, that I've just said, then we also know that the horn of David is something that shows a new understanding of what glory looks like and what strength looks like. It is of a God whose strength is made perfect in weakness, in a God whose power is made manifest in sacrifice. That is the glory of God, the goodness of God, the substance and essence of God is revealed in the incarnation of baby Jesus. That is what we celebrate at Christmas, to me. Of course, we celebrate the possibility of eternal life. Of course, we celebrate that we are freed from sin. Of course, we celebrate all the benefits that accrue to us from being invited into the kingdom. But more than that, we celebrate that God's glory is made complete and the fact that it reaches out to everyone in a broken world and to every person who is broken and to every element of that brokenness and declares that we are set free from those debts, declares that we are set free from death, and that each one of us is able to be made his child and invited into the kingdom and be loved by him and be favored by him because today a savior is also born for you specifically. And that is the glory of God as expressed in the fullness 
as it has been from the beginning and as it will be in the end, because behold, he will make all things new. Amen. Questions or talk?